You may be seated. I would invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles with me to chapter 19 in 1 Kings as we continue on uh, in the story of Elijah. Elijah, at this point, who is like Jonah, a prophet who ran from God, ran from his calling. He uh, fell into a deep and abiding depression, but the Lord is in this section going to restore him and to remind him of his calling. Now, you remember we read uh, verses 8 through 21 before, and I had emphasized the earlier portion of the vor- uh, verses. We looked at um, uh, verses 8 through 14, and today we're going to be considering verses 15 through 21, and particularly talking about the calling of the successor to Elijah, the prophet Elisha. But before we do that, let us turn to the Lord who gave both these prophets their ministry, and let's ask for his help. God, our Father, we remember that the Pharisees studied your word day and night, but they did not have the light of your Holy Spirit within them, illuminating them inwardly. And as a result, they never saw the truth. They didn't see Christ in the scriptures. They didn't see their need of the Messiah whom you would send. And so they studied day and night, but they did not find Christ, for they did not want to. Lord, let us not be like that. As we go to these scriptures, remind us, O Lord, of how great our need of Jesus is and how great our calling to him is. Remind us also that these are the most important things that we will hear. We fill our lives with all sorts of nonsense on a regular regular basis, and we speak constantly of the things of time. Help us this day to speak of the things of eternity and our place in the kingdom. Help us to see with new eyes and help me, O Lord, to preach. Lord, I I can't hope to unfold the power of your scripture. I I can reach men's ears, perhaps, especially with the aid of amplification. But, O Lord, I cannot reach hearts. Only you can do that. Only you can be the one who effectually calls us. And I pray, O Lord, that this would be a day of effectual calling. Now, Lord, please be with us and be our teacher. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Starting with verse 8. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights, as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. And they seek to take my life. Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a small, a still small voice. So it was, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive... Anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah. You shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, 
Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing the 12 yoke of oxen before him. And he was with the 12th. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. One of the great blights of the church in every age, and especially this age that we now live in, uh, are the multitude of men and even women in the modern age who proclaim themselves prophets and who will willingly pronounce, thus saith the Lord, and then speak lies. Tell people things that the Lord has not said. In fact, tell people things that go directly against God's word. They deceive and they mislead God's people. And these men and women were not called by the Lord. They run in the name of the Lord, but they were unsent. You remember there were messengers who used to run to carry important messages from the king or to tell the people good news, the battle has been won, and so on. But the worst thing that could happen is somebody takes a message and they run with great zeal as if to tell the people, and the people come thinking that they're going to communicate a great, a great truth to them, some good news, and then they deliver a message that is just falsehoods, deceits, and lies, but they do it in the name of of the Lord. Their messages contradict the word of God in the Bible. Their prophecies, they don't come to pass, but people still listen to them. They tune into them. It is amazing if you, you hear the statistics about how many people pack their stadiums. Uh, Joel Osteen's stadium, 16,000 at seats. It is always filled, and then millions more listen to his message day by day. A message that God hasn't sent. A message that, that doesn't reflect the truth of God's word. It's just things that tickle ears. The things that tell people what they want to hear. There is no law. There's no gospel. There's no sending people to Christ. There's no telling people the good news. That we are sinners without hope in this world. But that there is a mighty savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. Instead it's all about material wealth. Who told you you could not have blah 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 blah. You know. It's empty. Vanity. It's so much. It's words spoken into the air. Intended to tickle the ear. But not intended to grow the soul. And it makes them very 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 rich people indeed. But the people who they speak to are impoverished by it as they hear. It's often the case that these prophets are found clustered around political leaders. For instance, uh, I was in Uganda last year at the same time that the new Kenyan uh, president was being installed, President Ruto. And one of the things uh, that I noticed was that surrounding this president were these, unfortunately, legions of false prophets, word of faith leaders who were friends with him and his wife. Now, the president and his wife are professing evangelicals, but they have literally become surrounded, and, and to a certain extent, uh, at their own desire with these prophets, the false prophets of the word of faith movement. 
And the same, unfortunately, was true of the last administration in this country with word of faith pastor and prophetess uh, Paula White, uh, both playing an, uh, an important role in the inauguration, giving the prayer, and then being given an office in the White House. That ought not to be. But these false prophets have always attached themselves to power. They always seek to be near the leaders. They want to be seen as movers and shakers. They want to be seen as important. That's always the case. But charlatan prophetesses uh, around the leadership is nothing new. Unfortunately, uh, both Israel, the northern kingdom at the time of Elijah, and the southern kingdom, Judah, were filled with false popular prophets like the ones today, preaching false messages. God addressed and condemned these prophets throughout the Bible. But perhaps the strongest condemnation that God ever gave to one of these unsent prophets is in the book of Jeremiah. If you'll turn with me, uh, we're going to go ahead in time and in the Bible to the major prophets, and I'd like you to turn to Jeremiah 23, and there we're going to take a look at verses 11 and following. 23 and verse 11 and following. There we read the Lord saying, For both prophet and priest are profane. Yes, in my house I have found their wickedness, says the Lord. Therefore their way shall be to them like slippery ways. In the darkness they shall be driven on and fall in them. For I will bring disaster on them. The year of their punishment, says the Lord. And I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. They prophesied by Baal and caused my people Israel to err. Also, I have seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They also strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns back from his wickedness. All of them are like Sodom to me and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with wormwood and make them drink the water of Gaul. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, profaneness has gone out into the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. They continually say to those who despise me, the Lord has said you shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, no evil shall come upon you. For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord? And has perceived and heard his word. Who has marked his word and heard it? Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord has gone forth in fury. A violent whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he is executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it perfectly. I have not seen, uh, sent rather these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. I did not send these prophets. This is the Lord declaring that the prophets who are speaking to the people in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom, the vast majority of them, unlike Jeremiah, they prophesy peace, they prophesy good things and abundance, but they're not telling the truth. This is a wicked people who have turned away from the Lord. They are no longer faithful to him. They don't believe his promises. They don't take notice of his curses. There is no fear of the Lord found amongst them. That's one of the things that comes out uh, whenever false prophets are gathered. You see a, a waning of the fear of the Lord. There's no reverence. There's no shame. There's no desire to, to be reconciled to God through his word. Instead, it's all false stories designed to pump us up, but which do not do any good in the long run and which make the Lord very angry. As you go through the scriptures, one of the things you will notice is that the, the heaviest condemnation 
falls on those who say, thus saith the Lord, but who aren't really speaking to him. In the scriptures, there's this continuing theme of what we also uh, refer to as the doctrine of the call to the gospel ministry. Again and again, we are shown that if somebody is going to speak for the Lord, they need to have been called by him. Now, some, like Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, were called and sent. Others, these false prophets, were not. But for those who are called, there's, there's this promise of blessing. And instead, for those who run unsent, there is this promise of cursing. The New Testament also echoes the Old Testament in this. It says that God has called his own divine messengers. He raises them up. He makes them. The great apostle Paul therefore introduces himself. He says, Paul, an apostle not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul does not say, I gained this calling by my own efforts. He rather says, I was called by God. Acts, for instance, says before Paul and uh, rather, uh, yeah, it's Barnabas and Paul are set apart for the work of taking the gospel to the Gentiles for the first time on their first mission journey. The Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then they are set apart with the laying on of hands and prayer. This is ordination. This is the outward manifestation, the acknowledgement of the church that, yes, God has put a divine calling upon these messengers. The Westminster Standards, the standards that our church operates under, uh, specifically state the word of God is to be preached only by such as are duly approved and called to that office. It is God who calls men to speak his word. It has always been such. The calling of God to preach his word is absolutely vital. But sometimes, as we have seen, legitimately called men will waver in their calling, either running away from it like Elijah, as we've just seen, or Jonah, or arguing with God that he needs to send someone else. Sometimes, you, you know, it, it's amazing. You have this man who is speaking to God. God says, I'm the one who formed you. I'm the one who has sent you. You are to be my messenger to so-and-so. And he's like, I don't think you have the right men. It's the wrong number. I'm sorry. Who are you trying to read? You know, this is, it's absurd, but we can do it. We'll, we'll try to find ways of getting ourselves out of that. Moses did it. Oh, I, I, I'm not... I'm not a good speaker, Lord. I'm definitely not the the person that you want to send to Pharaoh. Jeremiah did the same thing. And here we see Elijah, who has been in the throes of depression, being reappointed to the ministry. He's tried to run away from his calling, but the Lord has come to him and has put him back in it. God says to him, in essence, you need to get back to work, Elijah. I called you for a reason. You have work to do in my name. I'm still sovereign over all the nations, and my plan will come to pass. So go, go back the way you came, he says. And then anoint these three people. Raise them up, because I've called them to particular tasks as well. Note this, Elijah goes when the Lord tells him to. He no longer argues with the Lord. He gets up and he goes back. And throughout the Bible, we see that believing God and doing what he tells us to do is actually a mighty cure for depression. Nothing good would have happened had Elijah determined, no, I'm going to stay in this cave and I'm going to sleep. And I have found this to be the case in my own life. 
In times when I have been afflicted by what uh, Spurgeon called the minister's fainting spells or melancholy or what Churchill called the black dog of depression, it does me no good to draw back into myself, to become a navel gazer, to spend my time, uh, you know, moping around and, and sleeping. Uh, it also it does me no good whatsoever to turn to sin or to try to, to cure my depression through sinful means or the isms of men. What does me good when I am downcast is to remember who I am in Christ and who I've been called to be in his church and then to go out and to do those things. I have found that if you are constantly assisting and aiding other people and working within the kingdom, you can actually be so busy for God that you may become very weary and need a rest or a vacation, but that depression is not the major affliction in your life. The more we help others, the more we minister in the name of the Lord. Even when we are not given great success, the more I tend to find we don't have time to, to think of ourselves. There was, uh, I think I've mentioned this before, um, uh, in his uh, recent documentary, What is a Woman? Matt Walsh uh, talked about, well, he, he talked, uh, in, um, as he was talking about making that movie, he went to the Maasai people in Kenya, and uh, he was speaking to a woman, and he asked her the question, uh, he said, are you depressed? Uh, and she said, what do you mean? <laughs> you know? And he said, well, you know, are you sad about things? She says, I, I, have a, I have a husband, I have a house, I have children. What do I have to be sorry about or depressed about? From her perspective, she had everything that she needed. And she knew what she was doing every day. There was no long periods of leisure. She didn't Netflix and chill. She didn't bed rot as they, uh, they you know, she was up and active and doing every single day. He asked, you know, do you know people who are depressed? And she laughed and she said, we don't do that here. You know, it's, uh, it is unfortunately largely an affliction, depression that is, of people who aren't up and doing, who aren't going out and, and doing the things of the Lord. Now, sometimes we can go through those periods of melancholy. Elijah had been very active. You remember, he had been working for the Lord and then the circumstances, the things that didn't happen, the disappointments piled up. And he became uh, wanting to die. He became suicidal in his sorrow. But the Lord called him back, sent him back to the ministry, and he answered, which is what he should have done. So God, uh, in short, tells Elijah here, Hazael will be my rod for the disobedient in Israel. Jehu will wipe out Baal worship in the line of Ahab, and Elisha will support and then succeed you, Elijah. And don't think that there is no remnant. Here the Lord who created that remnant is saying, I will preserve them. I will always keep to myself a people in every place. And that's always been the case. No matter how afflicted the people are, the Lord has always kept his remnant. He has never allowed the church to be wiped out. Entire empires and uh, races have been swept off of the face of the planet, have gone to the dust heap of history, and yet God has always reserved a people to himself, preserved a church since the creation. Now, one of the, uh, obviously, evidences of that remnant still being there is Elisha. Uh, Elisha is still a worshiper of the Lord. And so he sends Elijah to him, and Elijah passes on his way to anoint Hazael. And now Elisha 
clearly comes, we can tell from the text, from a wealthy family. He has 12 teams of oxen being driven by servants there with him in the field. That would have been 11 teams before him, and then him driving his own team after them. Uh, these were the massive tractors, these oxen of the era. They were breaking the field, and to have so many of them and all of that land in indicated this is a prosperous family, a family that has done well, a family that has been preserved through the famine, for instance. They are still working. Elisha himself is driving this last pair of oxen with the others ahead of him. So he's uh, essentially supervising the work that's going on on the farm. And Elijah ordains Elisha by throwing his prophet's cloak or mantle upon Elisha. One commentator says this was a symbolic gesture. In fact, the expression wearing someone's mantle comes from this passage. By casting his mantle over Elisha, Elijah was designating the younger man as his successor. The mantle invested Elisha with all the spiritual authority that went with the office of prophet. Now, it wasn't that this was a magic mantle. Uh, it, the Lord uses ordinary things, signs to do supernatural things. It's rather like the water of baptism, isn't it? Baptism doesn't, the water itself is not what cleanses away our sin. That's the working of the Holy Spirit, but it's an outward sign of that. And this mantle, this coarse hair mantle, showed that this man was called by God and set apart for God's work. Now, at this point, when he's been called and he's had the mantle thrown on him, Elisha has a decision to make. Will he, who's obviously supervising the work of his family farm, will he follow Elijah into a life of serving the Lord, a life that he knows from having observed and heard about Elijah will involve constant trials and difficulties? that will not be one that is attended with comfort or wealth? Will he determine that he will follow in that way, or will he stay with the family business, which is the safer and the more prosperous course? In one sense, it's never safe to say no to God, trust me. Um, but in, in the world sense, yes. It's interesting, isn't it, that when Jesus called his own apostles to him, he, he didn't call the jobless or the idle. He called young men to leave the trades that they were already working in, to leave their families. I am not certain that the apostles' parents were so thrilled when their sons got up and followed Christ because it meant that they lost these workers. They lost what they saw as the, the next generation of the family business. We see that happening in Matthew 4. You may want to turn there. Matthew 4, verses 18 through 22, and then I'm going to be looking at Matthew 9. We read, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, one of the wonderful things that happened to us when we went to Israel uh, recently, and back in March, was we were able to go to uh, Capernaum, and we were able to see the place uh, where the Sea of Galilee is. It's, it's beautiful. It really is. And the city itself, even though obviously it's ruins at this point in time, it was, it was well appointed. It was a nice place. I couldn't help but reflect on this. It was a nice place to live. The houses were made of stone. They were all very sturdy. And apparently, even today, there's a lot of fish in that particular lake. These brothers were in a position to prosper, and they had everything that they needed. And now they're being called from their families, they're being called from their jobs, and they're being called from their, their homes 
so that they can wander about Israel, sleeping rough, following this rabbi from Nazareth. And what happens? They do. They leave everything. They get up and they follow Christ. Matthew 9.9, also it's not, well, maybe they weren't very, very wealthy people. Well, Jesus called people whose business was money as well. Remember he called Matthew, Matthew 9.9, as he passed on from there? He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. He left behind all of his money. He left behind the ability to, to rake in tax money for the Roman Empire. He got up, and he followed Christ. Now, they didn't take a vow of poverty, but poverty was included in the deal. It was just the case that they were never going to make a lot of money. So why did they follow? What was it outwardly that was beguiling to them? We know why the word of faith prophetesses and prophets do their thing. They get money, they get Learjets, they get access to the corridors of power. They think they're very important. People fawn over them. That was not going to be the case with the apostles. So why did they follow when Jesus said to them, follow? Well, the answer is because just like Elisha, they were effectually called. Matthew Henry puts it this way, and you can read this actually in your folder. It's the Sabbath meditation. Matthew Henry says, an invisible hand touched Elisha's heart and unaccountably inclined him by a secret power without any external persuasions to quit his husbandry and give himself to the ministry. It is in a day of power that Christ's subjects are made willing nor would any come to Christ unless they were thus drawn. Jesus says, follow. And they do, because their hearts are changed. And they have a desire. They are now willing to get up, to forsake all, and follow him. There's a power to that calling, an invisible power, a spiritual power. Not too terribly different from what we read about when it came to Lazarus. Lazarus did not have his own power to get up out of the grave and come to Christ when Jesus said to him, come forth. But he was given that power. He was changed. He was made alive. He was once dead, four days stinking in the tomb. Made alive, and he can't but follow Christ. How difficult it would have been. Entirely wrapped up, essentially mummified, you know, shambling out. I've got to go to my Lord. I have to hear the, I have to hear and obey the call of my master. It animates me. My heart can't Bear not answering that particular call. But note this. This is the thing people don't understand. Sometimes when you say they're effectually called, they, they make it, they change it in their mind so it's they're effectually dragged. I don't want to follow. You know, that kind of thing. I don't want to be, I don't want to be there. You know, that's not what's going on here. Matthew Henry has a, has a follow-up. He notes this. He will not force him nor take him against his will. Let him sit down and count the cost and make it his own act. The efficacy of God's grace preserves the native liberty of man's will. So those who are good are good of choice and not by constraint nor pressed, not pressed men. That is men, the, the pressed men in the British Navy were the poor souls who made the mistake of getting drunk too close to the ocean. They would find themselves in the morning with a splitting headache on one of his majesty's ships, having been um, volunteered into the Navy when they did no such thing. These are not pressed men pulled in by a press gang, but volunteers who willingly go to serve the Lord. So when Elisha asks permission to go back and kiss his mother and father and say, well, Elijah agrees. 
But note what Elisha does to, to show symbolically the permanency of his calling. And it's, a, it's, it's quite an act. He takes this oxen or this uh, yoke or this team of two oxen that he was driving and he roasts them. Boils is not a good translation, incidentally. He roasts them on a fire made from their yokes. It's a barbecue, not a boil um, in any event. Elisha, whose name means God is salvation, had been called by God. And he is willing to put aside his former calling forever. He's willing to turn away from where he had thought he was going and to follow after the Lord and to run after him, to run after Elijah, to pursue his calling, to deliver the Lord's world, word rather, to the world. And he is called, he is ordained, and he is sent, and he responds. It was the same later with Jeremiah. Jeremiah was told by the Lord in Jeremiah 1.4, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand, touched my mouth, And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, understand this. It's not that the Lord looks around and says, Let's see, is there anybody here who might be my messenger? Anybody? Anybody? No, what happens is he says, I formed you. I gifted you for this ministry. Before you were even born, I had determined that you were going to be my servant. And that's what happens with Jeremiah. You can't talk back to God, therefore. He says, you know, I I made you exactly the way I wanted you. With all of your idiosyncrasies, all of your flaws, you're not a perfect man, you are not Superman, you're not Hercules, you're not one of the demigods from the Greek myths, you are an ordinary man, but I will be with you. And the people will see your ministry, but they will see my power in the midst of it. They'll hear my word. And it was the same with Christ's apostles to whom Christ said, you did not choose me, remember in John 15, 16, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. I chose you is what God says to his messengers, not you chose me or you just ran. If that's the case, if you're running unsent, you are putting yourself in a desperately bad position. Not only will you be a bad prophet, but you are in trouble with the Lord if you're running unsent. So it's the same today. Those whom God calls to the ministry, whether that ministry be to uh, the office of pastor or elder or deacon or missionary or evangelist, those men whom he calls, he gifts, and he gives them a desire within them to, to answer the call. I remember after I I began to uh, have people coming up to me when I was a young Christian and saying, we think you're called to the ministry, I wasn't certain. I really was not. So I asked a pastor. He handed me a book called Called to the Ministry. I read it, and I was like, oh, my word. One of his central theses was that if you have the gifts to teach and to preach and the desire to do so, that's a sign of God's calling, and you better not say no to God in the midst of that. But, you know, I, we were not ready for that. I went to my wife and I said, I think I'm called. And she burst into tears. And um, that was not what she had expected. She, she wisely put it, I wanted a Christian husband, not a pastor. Um, so I just wanted a Christian. Um, 
But throughout the rest of the year, in between me telling her I thought I was called and her saying, you are, let's go, I went through this process of thinking, uh, all, every day I went into work, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be here. I, I no longer had any joy uh, in what I was doing. Even though I could do it, I knew it wasn't the place I was called. So, the people, one of the things that you will notice, and when somebody is genuinely called, they're not the only person who thinks they're called. If you think you have a call to the ministry, but you're the only person who would say, I have a call to the ministry, and everybody else kind of looks at you like, uh, really? Um, that's a fairly good sign, actually, that you're not called to the ministry. If also, you don't really have a clear conscience about it. If it's not, you know, fire in your bones, that's probably a problem as well. And finally, if, if a court of the church does not agree and does not set their seal, their imprimatur upon you, then it's highly unlikely that you're called. I want to show you an, uh, an example of, uh, of the way that calling with all of those elements works out. In Acts chapter 6 and verses 3 and following, we see the calling of the first deacons dealing with an emergency within the church. But notice this, the apostles, while they're there, they don't simply say, okay, we need six guys, you, 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 and you, and you, or seven guys, rather. They instead, they say this to the congregation, starting in verse 3, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And here we have a word, nation. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. The congregation knew the men who the Lord had set apart. They recognized the gifts they had. And they said, these are the men. They recommended them. And then, after that had been done, they are ordained to that particular ministry. The court of the church, in this case the overseers, the apostles, say, yes, these are the men whom God has called to this task. That's the process of, of calling and ordination. Now, it is often the case that God chooses men who seem to be prospering in other fields. One of the great examples of that would be, of course, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was an incredibly successful Harley Street physician. He worked as an assistant to Lord Horder. He would have been the next physician to the king and his family. And yet, he had that call, that sense that he was supposed to be preaching the gospel that grew in him and grew in him. And eventually, he quit his job and he moved to Aberavon in Wales, a very, very poor area of Wales. And he preached the gospel. People desperately struggled to call. They said, you're one of the best clinicians, one of the best diagnost uh, diagnosticians of our age. We need you here working in the medical field. But Martin Lloyd-Jones was not content merely to minister to men's bodies. He knew that they were eternal creatures. He speaks of the fact that he was more and more compelled by the fact that he could repair for a time a man's body. But if the man was not in Christ, eventually that very man would end up going to hell. That which was most needed was spiritual change, not just physical change. Sometimes they have excuses, rich people, for not following. The, you know, the great example of that is the rich young ruler. The Lord Jesus Christ comes to him and says, follow me. But he has great wealth. He's not willing to give up. Great power. He's not willing to give up. So he won't follow him. There are other men who are called and they won't go because they have 
strong connections to their family. Let me go first and bury my... Wait until my dad's dead, then I'll call you, and then I'll come and follow you. Another who said, uh, let me go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Let me go through that long process of saying goodbye to my... No, I'm calling you now. I need your answer now. Jesus says to the people who, who say that kind of thing, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. I always wonder, is Jesus thinking about Elisha and the fact that he, he burns his plow and he roasts his oxen to show that he is answering the call of God? Well, anyway, simple application, two parts to it. What about you? What about you today? You're part of the stream of history. You're part of God's sovereign plans. All of you have a role to play. Have you answered first the call of Christ, that, that general call? You remember Jesus said in, in Luke 9, 23, then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man who gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Once again, the call to Christ has gone forth today. Jesus is calling you to follow him, to take up your cross and to follow, to die to self, to turn away from the world, to turn away from those things that might lead to worldly prosperity but involve terrible compromise, inevitably. Have you answered that call? Have you gotten up and followed him? Or are you still waiting on the offers of the world? Oh, they've offered me so very much, and I think that they'll probably deliver. No, they, they won't. The world, unlike Amazon, does not deliver everything to you in two days. It doesn't happen. The world makes promises. The world, the flesh, and the devil tell you again and again, do this, and I will give you, when they have no power to give these things. It's all a deceit meant to stop you from turning in the right direction. So that's the first question. Have you actually gotten up and followed Christ? And then secondly, I have said that there are tons and tons of men and women these days who are running unsent for the wrong reasons within the church. But I believe that there's also a great number of young men or middle-aged men or even sometimes elderly men who have received the call but are not answering it. In other words, they have been gifted. They have been set apart by the Lord for a particular ministry. And he said, come follow me. And they're, they're saying, I don't speak well. I've got the family problems I've got to deal with. Or my job, you know. I'm, they need me here. I'm, I, I'm, I'm very important in this particular organization. I'm doing a great work. I can't stop. Or whatever. They just say, I'm afraid. I don't know how to do this. Brothers and sisters, Pastoral work terrifies me. Honestly, it does. Speaking to people. You're talking to, you know, as a kid in school, you know, I couldn't, I didn't know how to frame words expressing to to a girl, I like you. Why does he stand there like like an idiot, mumbling and looking at his feet? You know, I, I couldn't do that. Public speaking was not something that, you know, <laughs> if you told me when I was a teenager, you know, someday you're going to spend uh, every week, several times a week, speaking to large groups of people. I would have said, what are, uh, that's a curse. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I didn't think I could do it. But the thing is, I couldn't do it. This is the thing you need to remember. Those whom the Lord calls, he gifts, and he gives the power to do this work. 
He is the one who puts his word in your mouth. When I stand up, I'm, I'm still in my own self, as terrified as I ever was. But I stand in the strength of the Lord. And I do feel the fire in my bones. When a Sunday comes, when I can't preach, I feel out of place, out of sorts. I love hearing the word, but I want to be able to preach the word. I know that's my calling. To go into any other task or calling or whatever at this point in time would be abandoning my calling. I guarantee you, if you have been gifted, the Lord will stand you up in that ministry. And he will be behind you. He will be the one who empowers you for it. It may not be wildly successful, especially if you could not take it. But nonetheless, his will will be done in and through your life. Trust him. If you feel that call, therefore, in your bones, and if people are telling you, I think you're called to that, listen to them and answer that particular call. You are needed in the ranks. We have a generation passing away. My generation. We're going the way of all flesh. We need the next generation to step up. We need men who have been sent to answer that call and to run. Let's go before the one who calls us. God, our Father, we know you're the one who calls men to faith and women and children too. And you are the one who raises up your servants to perform ministry. And we are so thankful that you give them the power of the Holy Spirit. Remind us constantly that you are the vine, we are the branches. Without you, we could do nothing. But in you, there is a mighty power. That that sap of grace runs to us and allows us to bear fruit in your name. I do pray, therefore, for those who you have perhaps afflicted in conscience today because they have not yet followed you at all, or because they know that your calling is probably upon their life to be a servant, and yet they are afraid of that. I pray, Lord, that you would cause them to understand that you are the one who prepares, you are the one who protects, and you are the one who empowers men for ministry. And so let them be brave